Well, tonight, uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew again, Matthew chapter 11 tonight, Matthew 11, as we spend some time in another uh, kind of midweek meditation on some of this truth from the Gospels that we've been working back through over the last few months now. And I want to turn to another passage here from the book of Matthew, I pray will be an encouragement to your soul as it's been to mine. Uh, Truth be told, last week we had a heavier text that we wrestled with and thought about. And tonight, while it is certainly a challenging passage, it is, I think, refreshing and encouraging. And so I want to spend a few minutes tonight here in Matthew chapter 11. I want to read, uh, beginning at verse 25, I'm going to read down through verse 30. That'll be our text for tonight, okay? So Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25, we read this. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Just two big ideas tonight that I want us to see from these familiar verses. First of all, tonight I want us to consider the gracious will of God in Revelation, the gracious will of God in Revelation, and then secondly, the gentle heart of Christ for the weary. The gentle heart of Christ for the weary. Let's go ahead and dive right in and consider these tonight. I want to move rather quickly on the first, and we'll spend a little bit more time on the second, Lord willing. In the opening verses of this text that we've read tonight, Christ makes some some startling statements if you think about it. Just follow what's happening here. Immediately before this, Christ has denounced cities for their unbelief, their hard hearts. He has called them out for their lack of repentance and he's warned them of the coming judgment. And now our Lord offers a prayer to his Father. And on the heels of that hard statement about the the coming judgment because of a lack of repentance in the cities, it's worth noting that the Lord begins, Jesus begins his prayer by acknowledging his Father's sovereignty over everything. I mean, you just start to see this all over the place as you wrestle with the scriptures. What did he say in verse 25? He said, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. And how does he describe his Father? Lord of heaven and earth. This is a significant statement. The language is is unmistakable because God the Father is the Lord or the the Master over everything that is. Everything it says here in heaven and on earth is under the sovereign rule of the Father. And meditating on that universal um, sovereignty of King Jesus and his Father, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously declared this, He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, I think 
we begin to think that there are certain parts of this life that belong to others. When you look at your home, we think things like this. That's my house, right? My car. My time. My money. My plans. My hopes. My dreams. My family. I mean, how often do we find ourselves using that descriptor? My And I understand, in a sense, we are drawn to responsibility over certain things. I have to guard my own heart when I talk with other pastors because guys can start talking about my church, right? It's like it's as if somehow we possess it. And what we mean is the one church of which we belong. And yet it can start to sound an awful lot like we think of ourselves as little sovereigns. We're in charge. I think it's fascinating when you hear the Lord Jesus Christ himself pray to his father. How did he describe his father? You are the Lord, the master over heaven and earth. There is nothing that exists over which our Lord does not cry, mine! And I wonder, how tightly are you and I holding to the things we think are ours? Or is there a submittedness, a submissiveness to the will and the work and the plan and the purpose of our God? Next, I want you to notice the fact that Jesus thanked his Father, this Lord of heaven and earth, for manifesting his sovereignty in a specific way. And he says he manifested his sovereignty by hiding the truth of the kingdom from some people while choosing to reveal the truth of the kingdom to other people. You see that here in the text. Look at verse 25. What does he say? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did what? You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding... And revealed them to little children. Now I think we have to confess that this sounds like a a rather strange thing to thank God for, right? I mean, I think in our minds we would think, I thank you that you've revealed these things to everybody, right? But Jesus thanks him for hiding it from some and revealing it to others. And I just want to ask all of us to ask ourselves the question tonight, do we have a category in our mind that we thank God for ruling however he chooses to rule? Doing whatever he chooses to do? Or do we only thank God when he uses his sovereignty in the ways that agree with what we've already hoped and planned for? (laughs) When are we thankful for the sovereignty of God? When it goes our way, right? When it benefits us and our family. What I think is amazing is that Jesus says, I thank you that you have expressed your sovereignty in such a way that you have hidden truths from some and revealed them to others. Our hearts naturally ask, why would Jesus give thanks that God hid his revelation from anyone? Why would we thank God for that? I think to have an intelligent conversation about the revelation of God, we have to understand that the Scriptures have a lot to say. There's actually two kinds of revelation talked about in Scripture. I know this, and I'm not going to take a long time here. We've talked about it here before. But two kinds of revelation. Uh, First, there is what's referred to as natural or general revelation. 
And we would simply say that that's the revelation of, uh, of certain truths about God in creation. It's visible. To, and anyone can see it. It's, it's, it's in the creation. It's, it's actually in the conscience of man himself. Uh, when J.D. Crowley was here a number of years ago, he likes to talk about it as this little Bluetooth device in every soul. They kind of beep, beep, beep. It connects with the reality of God. In fact, Paul says you have to deny what's in you in order to deny the truth of who God is. Paul talks about this. There's a general revelation. It's seen in creation. And it has to be understood that that kind of revelation, though, what, what can be seen in creation, is only sufficient to condemn a person, not to save a person. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells us that because of what mankind, all mankind, sees in the creation, he is now without excuse. It condemns him, justly so, but the creation, the fact that the leaves come out in the spring and fall to the ground in the fall, the, the, the fact that the oceans come as far as they are allowed and no further, the, the fact that the waves continue to come and the sun continues to rise and set, the, the fact that rain comes and it falls on the just and the unjust, and we see these patterns in creation that show us there is a God and that God is powerful, those realities do not preach and there is a Savior named Jesus Christ. They simply say there is a God with whom you have to do and what does man do with that natural Revelation, man naturally rejects it. They reject it. In fact, that's the one word I think we could use to describe what Paul says happens in the natural heart when it sees natural revelation. The one word that used to describe the response of mankind naturally is rejection of what he knows of God. But there is a second kind of revelation. Not only is it natural or, or, or general revelation, but we have secondly a personal or a special revelation that the Bible tells us about. And this refers to the revelation of truths that can lead a person to repentance from sin and a saving submission to King Jesus. It's actually the, the, the message of the gospel. It's the truth of who, who Jesus is and how he saves and these are the kind of kingdom truths that Jesus actually came proclaiming, the things that he was talking about. It's the kind of things Jesus is talking about right here in our verse when he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He's, he's not here talking about general revelation. He's talking about special things he came to teach. And there are certain things that they just did not understand because they could not understand. It's important for us to understand that what Jesus meant by what he said here. I mean, he's talking here about the wise and understanding. Who, who are these people? Well, the wise and understanding here refers to those who are wise in their own eyes. They think they're smart, right? They're wise and they know it. It's a dangerous combination. It should be clear to us that our Lord is not here referring to intelligence. Rather, he's talking about those who are filled with intellectual pride. That's what Paul was referring to when he said in Romans 1 that claiming to be wise, they became, remember, fools. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. The wise and understanding, the people who think they've got life by the tail, they've got all the answers, they know what's going on, and no one can teach them anything. He says, those are the ones that the Father has hidden these things from because they think they've already got the answers. They don't want to be taught. They don't want to learn anything. 
One commentator actually argued this. He said, the means God uses to hide these things from such people is the darkness of their own proud, unregenerate hearts, which prevent them from seeing what God desires them to know and to accept. In fact, Paul says it three different times. God just turns them over. He just turns them over. He just turns them over to their own way of thinking. You just keep thinking that way. You just keep going your own way. I'll just let you destroy yourself. That's how Paul describes it. And truth be told, this happened in fulfillment of Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy. And in fact, John tells us about that plainly. John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, that's Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What was that word? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. You see, what Jesus really is praying here is, Lord, I thank you that you've kept your word. Isaiah said this would happen and you've done what you said you would do. Thank you. You've kept But you promised, you fulfilled the word of the prophet. Right here in our text, verse 27 of our passage here in Matthew 11 also tells us that King Jesus and the Father are completely on the same page about all of this. It's not as if they're competing in any way. Verse 27 said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. They're in agreement. They're not fighting each other. They're in full agreement with how this works. And this then is what Jesus was talking about when he said that the Father had had the language of our text was hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You see, not only has he hidden them from the wise and understanding, it says revealed to little children. These little children refers to those who acknowledge their utter helplessness and depend fully upon God's grace to save them. Little children who understand I can't do anything for myself. I desperately need the grace of my Father, my Maker. Back in the Beatitudes, King Jesus stated that plainly in verses 3 through 6 of Matthew 5. Do you remember the word? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is a description of of one who knows I don't have enough. I'm not strong enough. I I can't satisfy myself. I can't fill up my own soul. I am hungry. I am thirsty. I must be filled. And God says, those are the mouths I fill. Those are the hearts I comfort. Ones who know they need. Here then is really, we see this demonstration of one of the practical and eternal ways that these principles are worked out in the life of the proud and the humble. As you read this text and you see there are plenty of people who are absolutely proud, but they think they're full. And he says, okay, I'll let you keep thinking you're full. I think any any parent has been down this road at some point in time, and we're not nearly as wise as God, but I'm just saying even in our own human Experience, we understand what this is like for a child to say, I do myself. 
I do it. I do it. I do it. All right, do it. And then they break it, right? Or they dump it, or they, or, or, or they trip, or they fall, or they whatever. They make a mess, and, and, and they have to learn, right? Because the reality is, I can't help someone who doesn't think they need to be helped. That's just one small illustration of what he says he's doing here. These people who said, I, I'm wise, I'm understanding, I don't need anything. He says, fine, do life your way. often wondered how many who profess to be his still want to live life their way. Do what they want, go where they want, live like they want, say what they want. While calling themselves followers of Jesus. John MacArthur actually addressed this profound contrast between the the little ones and the, the wise and the Understanding, he wrote these comments. He said, The contrast between the wise and intelligent and little children is not between the knowledgeable and the ignorant, the educated and the uneducated, the brilliant and the simple-minded. It is a contrast between those who think they can save themselves by their own human wisdom, resources, and achievement, and those who know they cannot. It is a comparison between those who rely on themselves and those who rely on God. Well, the Father and the Son may be in agreement. The truth of the matter is that there are many of us who are potentially troubled by all of this. We read this and we go, I don't like it. I don't agree. It shouldn't be like that. I think it leads us to one more thought before we move on. As I said, I'm trying to move quickly here in the first main thought. But I don't want you to miss this, that Jesus then says that all of this that we just read took place according to the Father's, listen to the description, gracious will. It's gracious will. Look again at first verses here, 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. First glance, I think all of this sounds cold. It sounds heartless. It sounds sterile to the casual reader. We read all of this and we think, wow, that sounds so mean-spirited. It sounds so, so harsh and hateful. That's the way most people tend to describe sovereignty. That's why so many professing Christians hate the concept of sovereignty and fight against it. Because it sounds so mean. Well, it's just sovereign. I mean, think about this. Jesus simply said, for such was your will. I think some might be able to argue that point, right? It was just your will. You just did your own thing. Friends, that's not what he said. By saying, for such was your gracious will, our Lord has stated plainly that all of this is governed by the love and the grace of our God. Notice this, his grace and his sovereignty are not in competition. His kindness and his love and his sovereignty are not fighting with each other. They tend to fight in our minds. They never do in God's. Brothers and sisters, we can't afford to forget that 
these truths work together perfectly for our God is perfect in every way. And one of the hardest lessons, I think, for us to learn concerning God's judgment is this, that everyone who suffers the wrath of God suffers justly for their sins. So, somehow we, we have bought into something that is just running crazy through our culture right now. It's this thought that anything I suffer is equivalent to injustice. To go without, doesn't matter if I've been stupid with my money. If I go without, it's injustice. Wait a second. You understand that biblically, no one ever suffers the judgment of God unjustly. God's judgment on sin is always just. Always. Put another way, God owes no one anything, least of all salvation. He owes it to no one. Rephrased once more, maybe we would say it this way, no sinner has ever been deserving of God's grace or mercy. No sinner has ever been deserving of grace. Else God is a debtor. And it is no more grace. You see, there's just something in our human nature that believes I am owed something by my maker. We, we all know how to laugh at the old song, if you remember this, maybe some of you remember back when Disney was making these, these just funny cartoons with like Donald Duck and Goofy and Mickey Mouse, you know, the old ones. And Goofy would be out fishing when he should be working. And what's he singing? He's singing a song, the world owes me a living. That was Goofy's theme song. He's always playing, singing, the world owes me a living. That was a joke a few years ago. That is the doctrine of our day now. Should it surprise us when Christians have been saying for decades in America, God owes me. God owes me. Hear me, friends, God owes me nothing. But he has given me everything. That's grace. Friends, if God owes no one anything, then hear me. God owes no one revelation either. So think this through with me. The fact that God reveals himself, his son, his truth, and his kingdom to any sinner is completely an act of his grace. It's completely grace. 
And in light of all of this, I think that each of us who, who, who sits in this room this evening should, should be marveling at the fact that God the Father has revealed himself and his truth to us. This is amazing. Because he didn't have to. But he has. It's more, our Lord went on in this text not only to extend an extravagant, invita- an extravagant explanation of the grace of God, but to go on to extend an extravagant invitation to all who would respond to his call. So I said that we see here the gracious will of God in Revelation. But secondly, I want you to see this, the gentle heart of Christ for the weary. Just listen to the heart of Christ for us. Look again at verses 28 to 30. What what did he say here? Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. and My burden is light. Several things I want you to see. We don't have time for. For, to spend long on any of them tonight, but I do want you to see a handful of things here. First, I want you to note the universe, universality of the invitation. Universality of the invitation. L- look at what he says in verse 28 again. Come to me, all. I love what Jim Boyce has written about the language of this verse. Boyce, in his commentary on this text, wrote, Jesus' words are for people of all ages, all nationalities, all temperaments. He calls them exactly as they are. The King Jesus calls call here is universal in the sense that it's an invitation to anyone and everyone who will heed it. Remember, he's calling on the people who know they have a need, right? Because God has already held up his hand to those who don't think they need anything from him. Now Jesus says to all of you who are hearing and understanding, come, come. All of you who know your need, come. You see the second part of the text here. Note, note, note not only the, the, the universality of the invitation, but note, note that the invitation is for those who know they need it. Look at the language again, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Wise people don't think they're ignorant. Strong people don't think they're weak. Jesus said, you who know you're weary and you are laboring under a load you can't carry. Come to me. Come to me. I thought often how how much we struggle. Because we think we're strong. How much we miss of his goodness and kindness and instruction because we think we're smart. How much grace and help we miss out on because we think we've planned well. And we're working our plan. And he says, by now you should know you're tired. (laughs) You're weary, you're laden down. Life's bigger than you. Your burdens are heavier than you can handle on your own. That's how life was designed to be. A teacher, 
to show you and me that we need him. The language of hard work and being burdened down here does not refer to physical labor and to weariness so much as it refers to the burden of sin that weighs down the sinner's soul. Have you ever noticed how much more difficult the emotional baggage of life is than even the physical work? I remember when I would paint pipeline and mow lawns and sell books in between weeks of preaching. And my schedule was crazy and I did without a lot of sleep while I was working some of those jobs, but I will tell you that I would come back from a week of preaching far more spent after preaching for a week than I ever did when I was painting pipeline and mowing grass. In fact, if you ask me, which would you rather have as far as just sheer exhaustion? Give me, the, give me the manual labor every day. Because the weight of laboring under sin and spiritual reality and spiritual resistance is far more burdensome than manual labor ever is. See, the problem is that very few seem to notice the weight of the burden of sin that they carry. Oh, they know when, when life's gotten a little rough. They know when they've come to the end of their finances. But do we sense the weight on our souls that comes with the fallenness in this life? Like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, only a few, it seems, are ever troubled by the burden on their back and are willing to do whatever they must to deal with it, Right? Christ's invitation is to all, but in the end, it's only good for those who know they need it. The hymn writer Joseph Hart rephrased the the call of Christ well in his well-known hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. He said, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Clearly, King Jesus is calling to people who know their need and will respond to his gentle and gracious call. So it's a universal call as an invitation for those who know they need it. But a third thing to note here is the invitation is is centered on Jesus himself. This this is the the focus. What, What did he say here? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. I want you to notice for a minute. Just Let me just highlight the pronouns in these three verses. Just, just look at it. Come to me, he says. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Everything in these verses centers on Jesus. On our Lord. Clearly this call is is centered on him. Rightly so. He's the only one who people can run to and be saved from themselves and their sin. 
Just think about it. There is no higher call. There is no greater beauty. There is no deeper subject. There is no worthier pursuit in all of life than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet, we get so distracted, don't we? How much time we spend pursuing and thinking about and learning about and reading up on other things. My girls and I, with Christy tonight, we're, we're working through the devotional we gave you guys for Advent. We were working through some of it tonight at supper, and we were ta- looking at this concept of, of, of the Lord coming, and, and are we watching? Are we, are we looking for Him? Are we longing for Him? And we asked, what, what, what is it that if, if He came in this moment, we might be troubled by? And I think we all tend to think in terms of like, I don't want to get caught with my hand in the cookie jar at the wrong time, right? Like right before supper, Mama sees me, and I'm going to get my hand smacked with a wooden spoon, right? We're all worried about getting caught in some terrible sin. I, you know what? The longer I live, the more I'm, I'm concerned about this. There's so much He has told me about himself that I still don't know. But I'd rather learn my team's statistics. I'd rather read other stories and learn plot lines and characters. I'd rather get caught up on so many things in this life. We're so fixated on learning this and knowing that and doing this and going after that and enjoying this experience. And so often, the very things that were made by God to point us to Him tend to distract us from Him. And it doesn't bother us. That we should become, be becoming masters of truths about him because he's mastering us. Oh, I, I gave him an hour on Sunday. I gave him an hour on Wednesday. I spent a few minutes of morning on something. Whether or not I ever really have it in me doesn't matter, right? And, and, so, and how, how, much, how much of him are we pursuing because at the end of the day it's not just about knowing the stuff it's about a relationship with the person do you love him do you know him do you walk with him do you speak with him does he speak to you is he guiding your steps is he changing you from the inside out to be like himself He didn't say, come to a building on Sunday and listen to a few words I wrote down 2,000 years ago. He says, come to me and I'll give you myself. The fact of the matter is I'm concerned that if he walked in this room tonight, it's possible that some of us wouldn't recognize him. Because we don't spend much time with him. We got all this information and it's all academic. But what about the relationship? Depending on your translation, this call to learn may be translated learn from me or learn of me. The reason it's translated different ways is because the, the, the way this Greek can be handled can mean either from or of, and it probably means both in this context. It's probably left nebulous on purpose. 
Again, I think Boyce is helpful here. He wrote this. He said, when Jesus challenged his disciples to learn from me, he was comparing Christianity to a school in which he was to be both the subject matter and the teacher. Come learn of me from me. I wonder. Do we know more about him because we know him and we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord? Finally, I just want you to note that the invitation offers something. It offers rest. It offers rest to weary people. You know, it's somewhat ironic, I think, that our Lord would use the language of a yoke while promising rest. You, I think, know that a yoke, in general terms, was an instrument of work. It was used to carry or pull heavy burdens. It, it may have been used by human beings to just kind of put over the shoulder, maybe a couple of buckets of water, a yoke that they would carry with. It was, it was often a, 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 a double yoke that they would put oxen in. There were actually laws about not putting different kinds of animals so they didn't hurt each other as they pulled. They, they wanted the same kinds of animals that could pull together. They were instruments of work, and yet he uses the language of work to promise rest. There's an irony here. You see, while in general terms it's an instrument of work used to carry or pull heavy burdens, more symbolically a yoke was used in Scripture and throughout the ancient world to signify submission to the rule and authority of another. To come under someone's yoke. One ancient Jewish writer uh, actually gave a student this advice. He said to his student, put your neck under the yoke and let your soul receive instruction. Put yourself under authority and learn. That's what the teacher was telling his student. In simple terms, then, we might say it this way. Our Lord's invitation is to exchange our own yoke of bondage to sin for His yoke of submission to him. We may not like the language again, but friends, salvation always involves submission. You have to remember the fact that Matthew is presenting Christ Jesus as the rightful king of his people. That's his theme. King Jesus cannot rightly rule over people who refuse to submit to him, who refuse to obey him. King Jesus is not like other kings, though. I've said this many times. His self-description in this text is refreshing to the weary soul. Because we hear the language of yoke, we hear work. We hear the language of yoke, we hear authority. And we don't like either, do we? We don't like work, we don't like authority. And so he uses the language of both here. Then you have to hear how he describes himself. Unlike any king you've ever heard of, any politician you've ever met. I am gentle, he said, and humble of heart, lowly in heart. Who ever heard of a humble sovereign? To, to this language, he adds, My yoke is easy. 
And my burden is light. In light of this, Craig Keener, the commentator, wisely observed this. It's helpful. He said, Jesus' yoke is not lighter because he demands less. We hear less, we hear lighter yoke, and we think, oh, okay, okay, whoo, he's demanding less. No, Jesus' yoke is not lighter because he demands less, but because he bears more of the load with the burdened. He bears more of the load with the burdened. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told to cast all our, our cares and our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. That's the picture here. You see, friends, this is how Jesus can promise rest, not once, but, but twice in this passage. And, and first, notice he tells us that there's a rest that is, that is given, right? He says, I will give you rest. This rest comes at salvation. It's when we're, we're freed from the burden of our sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can run through the New Testament and look at this. We don't have time tonight. But, but this, this is a repeated theme. But not only are we given rest, but the text goes on to say, you will find rest. There's a rest that's given. There's a rest that's found. This is the rest that comes in our daily lives as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the peace he gives that passes all understanding. It makes no sense why I should be able to rest right now because of what's going on in my life. And yet I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at, I'm at rest. In the worst situation I've ever been in, my soul can rest. I find rest in him. As each of us must learn to love and to trust him more and more. And as we come to cast our burdens upon our Lord, because we know he cares for us, we find a rest that we could not have imagined. My question for us this evening would simply be this, friends. Have you, have you responded to our Lord's invitation? Are you finding what he's promised you will find because you're running to him, not just the trappings around him? You're actually engaged in a relationship, not just a, a member of a religion. You know him. You know his heart. You hear his words and they are life to you. Not you hear his words and you can't handle them because they're so burdensome. Isn't that amazing that he later would say, you can't, can't consider his words, his, his commandments a burden. Why? Because he's told us the yoke he brings is easy. And it's light. It's not burdensome. It gives life. And do you know, are you increasing, increasingly coming to know his rest for your soul? By God's grace, I'm praying that we each would come to trust the, the gracious heart of our Father and the gentle heart of King Jesus. The gracious heart of God and the gentle heart of Christ. So with the minutes we have left tonight, as we pray, I, I want us to pray as those who understand that gracious will of God in Revelation. And those who treasure the gentle heart of Christ for the weary. 
And when he says, come to me, let's not treat it like a burden. Let's run to him. Because he is gentle. He is humble. And he gives rest to those who come. Instead of that in tonight, let's, let's pray, okay?